What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today brought to you by toyota let's go places welcome to forward thinking hey there and welcome to forward thinking the podcast that looks at the future and says if you should get it an email with the subject stinky cheese better off protecting your chances under no circumstances should you open it I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick, and I'm not going to ask about that. Let's move on to the topic today, which is cybersecurity. Yeah, we wanted to talk about a recent story about the idea of automating cybersecurity. But before we even get into that, let's talk about why, you know, just kind of set the groundwork of what cybersecurity is all about and why it's such a huge challenge uh, in today's world. So, Really, when you think about it, cybersecurity experts and hackers have always played kind of a tick-tock game. Right. Really, the hackers, you could argue. It's an arms the, race. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 uh, it's very much a reactionary kind of uh, relationship. So it starts whenever a developer releases some software into the world. Uh, operating system upgrades would be a major example. So let's say that... You know, Microsoft uh, releases a Windows update or Google and Android update, that kind of thing. Hackers then start to look at the operating system and start to explore it, probe it for vulnerabilities, things that could be exploited. Um, and the reason for that is the way a computer works, the way it executes code, if you're able to exploit vulnerabilities, you can get access sometimes to very important uh, elements of a computer, like to the point where you could potentially – Take it over. Uh, sure, you, you can either bend it to your will, use it to do some some upward processing, or um, or get data from that person's computer to to use in some kind of criminal way. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, it may be something as simple as uh, simple in quotes as stealing files. It may mm-hmm. be something more complicated, like installing a keylogger that's going to 
copy everything someone types in. So you start to get all of their, their info, like their uh, logins and passwords, that kind of stuff. It mm-hmm. may even be a backdoor access where you can, you can control that processing power for specific nefarious purposes without the person necessarily knowing what's up, except for the fact that their computer seems to be really kind of sludgy and slow. Mm-hmm. Or it could just be for mischief. Yeah, it could just be that, you know, you, or the lulls. Yeah. Yeah, as they say. So meanwhile, you've got the cybersecurity professionals who are looking for vulnerabilities too, but they're not looking to exploit them. They're looking to patch them, to, to address those vulnerabilities and, and tweak them so that they're no longer an opening for hackers to exploit. They also try to nullify malware that hackers are developing. So, uh, they're trying to make sure that the various worms and viruses and other types of malicious software that hackers unleash upon the world are nullified in some way. It's super tricky to do because you, you remember those old days of the huge downloads of the Norton antivirus updates. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I remember the days of like when you're shutting down your computer and it says, "Hang on, I need to download about." You know, half a gig's worth of data before you can leave. And then you think, well, might as well go get another cup of coffee because I'm going to be here for a while. Uh, at any rate, uh, this, this is very much the relationship, right? You've got the release of software, hackers trying to exploit it, cybersecurity professionals trying to address the vulnerabilities and nullify the malware. Hackers go back to trying to find other vulnerabilities to exploit. Uh, also, this is not necessarily all just happening back to back because there's a lot of overlap. I mean, just because a, a cybersecurity professional identifies and even patches uh, vulnerable uh, opening in software, that doesn't magically propagate it out to everybody who's ever downloaded that software. Yeah. Yeah. So this is your your responsibility message here. Update your browser. Update your browser. Update your operating system. Update your security settings. Make sure that you keep those as close to up-to-date as possible because while it can be irritating to take up time to do that sort of thing, it often addresses these vulnerabilities and makes you less liable to experience issues created by evil, nasty hackers out there. This also means that cybersecurity folks are typically a step behind hackers, right? Mm -hmm. Because often they, while they're trying to identify their own vulnerabilities – uh, they may not be looking in the same places that hackers start looking at, and they have to respond to the malware that hackers are creating. So you get this TikTok where the reactionary response of the cybersecurity is to counter the move that the hackers have made. But it doesn't magically counter the next move the hackers make. You have to do it over and over and over again. So wouldn't it be cool if we could get a um, an actionary system rather yeah. than a reactionary system? Or, or one that is reactionary all on its own and doesn't require a human interaction at all. Right. Because uh, we're the bottleneck, really. Yeah. We're, we're the slow part. Well, especially now. And I'll get into more of the reason of why now it's particularly a problem uh, in a little bit later. But as you say, it can be actionary too, Lauren. You could have software that is actively looking at vulnerabilities before any human has even laid eyes, apart from the developer, on the code. Mm-hmm. And then in that case, you you close off the system before a hacker is even able to exploit it. But in other cases where there may already be a vulnerability known to hackers, uh, the the systems could be patching that vulnerability as well as trying to counteract any malware that hackers have created. If you were able to do this and take humans out of that picture, it would be amazing because it'd be way faster and more efficient than uh, than than a human. But it's a tall order. It's really not an easy thing to ask for. Who would ask for such a thing? DARPA. Son of a... You're right. They did. DARPA asked that thing. Wait, wait. First of all, though, let's remind everybody, who is DARPA? It's the R&D division within the Department of Defense, with the awkwardest name ever being the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Used to be ARPA. Yeah, it did used to be ARPA. I like I like that the the way you delivered it. It made me think of like defense against the dark arts, which in a way is uh-huh. kind of what we're talking about today. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I actually I never heard it put this way before. This might be have always been part of its charter, but uh, but I didn't come across this description until some stuff we were reading for this episode today. But they described it as preventing strategic surprise. 
I watched a video about that and my favorite quote was, surprises are hard to predict. I, thought, <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. I watched that same video. I'm like, you don't say. Yeah. It's Sur- surprise. Kind of, I think it's he said. like it's the definition of yeah. surprise. I think he said surprises can be hard to predict. Yes, okay. which I thought was amazing. That's, it reminds me of the huh. giant the giant souvenir shop in Las Vegas where one of the signs says, if it's in stock, we have it. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, I guess that's, I mean, I would have argued that that was pretty much obvious, but I'm glad that you put it out there. So, uh, yeah, DARPA is, has got a long history, obviously with technology. Uh, I mean, the internet, you could argue is really a product of, work that was done when DARPA was called ARPA. There was a predecessor to the internet called ARPANET. And during the development of ARPANET, many of the protocols that underlie the way the internet works were developed. So very much uh, a part of the, the world of software and hardware, not just, hey, can we develop a new thing that flies faster and uh, and is harder to detect than anything else we've ever created. But Things that have benefits far beyond just a basic military application. Now, to be fair, DARPA being part of the Department of Defense is primarily concerned with matters of protecting national security and and uh, making certain that the United States technological capability remains at the very front of the entire world as mm-hmm. much as possible. You know, you got to keep that in mind. But beyond that, the developments of Various DARPA initiatives have uh, much greater consequence than improving our defensive capabilities. Oh, sure. Well, and and sort sort of the same way that that just like NASA getting people into space has a lot of further-reaching implications in terms of technology and design. And we've in fact talked about a few of the uh, of DARPA's projects here on the show before. Right. So first, we should mention uh, DARPA really is more of an administrative organization, right? It's not so much that you go to DARPA and you enter into a world of shiny labs with lots of uh, beakers and and beeping computers and stuff and 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 technicians and scientists running everywhere with like crazy alien looking devices. That's not really what DARPA is. What DARPA really is is the organization that provides funding to other research organizations. They what what DARPA does is identify a need they say, we need for this type of technology to exist. Who out there thinks they can do it? And Because we've got some money for you. Exactly. And then you've got different organizations that respond and they'll say, I think we can do it. And then DARPA reviews the various proposals, decides which organizations are the most likely to succeed based upon those proposals and funds them in order to try and develop that technology. Uh, and... Sometimes what DARPA does is they they do this in the form of a competition. It's not just a, hey, we need this one type of technology. Uh, who thinks they can do it? It's, hey, we've got this idea for a crazy thing we want people to be able to do with, with technology. Uh, we're going to pit you against other groups that also want to do this thing. And whoever wins gets a big old fat prize, which may or may not be – equal to the amount of money that these organizations have to pour into their research and development to create the technology in the first place. Well, sure, but they still own that technology and can use it to make the monies. Absolutely. Uh, so we have talked about them multiple times. Uh, the first time that I was able to find using the handy-dandy Control-F feature on our RSS feed was from November 8th, 2013, when we published Robot You Can Drive My Car. How many times have we made that joke? I'm almost convinced. I'm pretty convinced I made that that title. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But about 78. Yeah. So uh, it was one of our earliest episodes about autonomous vehicles. Mm-hmm. And in that episode, we talked about how DARPA played a key role in getting the development of driverless cars rolling. <laughs> because they have wheels. Uh, but yeah, the, the original grand challenge that DARPA issued was about autonomous vehicles. Uh, on May 8th, 2015, we published an episode titled What's Up with DARPA, which really was more of an episode to explain what DARPA really is all about and some of the projects that DARPA was overseeing at that time um, and mostly leading up to the Grand Robotics Challenge, which, of course, we had already 
kind of covered in the previous episode. And then we had on June 17th, 2015. So not long after that one, we released our episode about the DARPA robotics challenge. The, uh, not the, not the grand challenge, which was autonomous cars, but rather the challenge of building a humanoid robot, or at least a robot capable of driving, falling over, <laughs> falling over a lot. They people excelled at that part of the challenge, which really wasn't part of the challenge. You didn't want your robot to fall over, but to be able to do a, a series of of uh, steps, a series of tasks that would potentially be part of a rescue operation or an emergency response operation in the wake of a disaster similar to the. Uh, the Fukushima plant when it, uh, the, the tsunami hit. Yeah. So like one of the tasks was walk to a door and open it. Man, that was a, that was a tough one. Yeah. It turned out to be a lot hard. Like robots were not being able to grab the, the, weren't able to perceive where the doorknob was accurately. And so they kept trying to grab at places the doorknob definitely was not. Yeah. Uh, uh stepping they, through the doorway was bad. They were bipedal. So yeah, which is a very difficult thing to mechanize. Yeah. Uh, they had to pick up a drill and like use it. Yep. They had to, uh, climb a set of stairs, which also turned out to be super tricky. Yeah. There were a lot of things that we, humans typically find fairly easy. I mean, even if we couldn't do all of the different tasks, we might find at least some of the tasks pretty natural for us to to complete. But for robots, that's not the case. There is no natural for a robot. Uh, And it turned out that a lot of those what we thought of as simple tasks were really complicated. So those are the episodes where we specifically focused on DARPA. But today we want to talk about the more recent Cyber Grand Challenge, which comes into the the concept we're talking about here about creating an automated system capable of recognizing vulnerabilities and patching them in real time. That's the basic idea, right? Like DARPA's like, hey, this is what we want. Uh, you team, you know, start forming teams out there to do competitions, and um, we'll have a big challenge, and whoever wins gets a prize. That's the basic idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting because it's using an approach that humans have been uh, following for a while. It's it's not not like they've invented a game that the robots have to compete in. The game already existed and, in fact, has a, a uh, bit about um, – uh, an interesting name. It's it's a capture the flag game. Yeah, w- which is funny because it doesn't actually resemble capture the flag. Yeah. So what what is a capture? They have these tournaments, right? Right. Uh, so a capture the flag tournament might be a thing. A bunch of hackers show up to, and it's a model for testing people's skills at cybersecurity challenges. So uh, a CTF tournament, you might see something like this: a bunch of cybersecurity pros. Uh, I'll show up and get a piece of target software and then they go to work trying to be the first to discover security flaws in the software and then release a secure patch to fix the problem. So they've got to sort of they have to like reverse engineer the software, figure out what its vulnerabilities are, address those vulnerabilities and get them fixed. Uh, and so th- that sounds like a, a, a good test of your steel. Sure. As a cybersecurity professional, but what if you removed the human hackers from the competition? Right. Like, so in this case, the people competing aren't competing directly in searching that software, finding the vulnerabilities and patching them, but rather developing software that can do that on their behalf. Automatically. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that they aren't the ones guiding the software. Very much like in the driverless car scenario, you were not allowed to have any kind of remote control of the vehicle, right? The vehicle had to be able to do everything on its own. And if it failed, it failed. Same sort of thing with this kind of software. The idea being that you don't get to guide the software. It has to be able to analyze that that target software and identify the vulnerabilities and patch them all on its own. So why even bother doing this? Well, it's because computers are everywhere now. They're mm-hmm. pervasive. They're integrated into our daily experience. And they're on all scales, yeah. right? The the stakes have never been higher as far as cybersecurity goes. Yeah, they're, and they're, they're only getting higher. Exactly yeah. right. So it used to Higher-er. be... 
much higher. Higher, higher or, 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 yes. It, it used to be, you know, the early days of viruses, you know, way back in the day where things weren't even necessarily networked yet and people were spreading viruses via physical disks and oh, stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, the worst that was going to happen is you, you might ca- cause a lot of damage to your computer. Yeah. And that's not good. I mean, th- that could have, you know, potentially disastrous consequences for somebody's personal I don't know, personal projects or whatever. But right. it, it wouldn't have um, extremely dangerous, widespread, society-wide consequences. Yeah, it's not not a catastrophic event. It's, it's something probably where, not going to kill anybody. Right. On, on an individual basis, it could range from inconvenient to financially difficult, depending. Like, let's say, you know, my dad, for example – is an author. Mm-hmm. And if he had had a computer virus affect our old computer upon which he was writing his novels, that would have had a very profound impact on his ability to do his work as an author. Yeah. But it's not like that would suddenly also affect all the other computers in the world. It's happening on a very individual machine. Right. But then, okay, so once you start networking computers all over the place, suddenly you can spread viruses uh, and malware and, and vulnerability knowledge much more easily and you can exploit sensitive information and you can, uh, you, you can, you can have much more far reaching consequences. You can cause economic disaster. Right. Um, and now imagine expanding this to the next level beyond just network devices. Uh, our devices are no longer just information devices. They're, uh, you know, standard infrastructure devices, mm-hmm. devices that control the world around us. Uh, right. Power plants and our own HVAC systems yeah. and all, all sorts of things. Yeah. So our we, elevators are everything. Right. Yeah. yeah. We started with things like your desktop computer, mm-hmm. but then we also have, okay, well, we also have laptop computers. Oh, and now we've also got, uh, cell phones. Oh, and smartphones came a little bit later. Oh, tablets too. Oh, there are computer systems in, uh, traffic lights too mm-hmm. not just within an entire system of traffic lights but within individual traffic lights or appliances or televisions or sensors i mean we as we approach the internet of things we have more and which you could argue that era is already upon us we are in right. the internet of things era now we have more and more devices that are partially or fully dependent upon computerized systems which may and in fact, you might as well say do have vulnerabilities in them. They may not all be identified, but there's almost certainly a vulnerability in every system that human beings have produced because we can't necessarily predict right. the vulnerabilities while we're making them. Like they really shouldn't have released that smart oven that has the vulnerability where somebody can get it to throw you inside and turn on self-cleaning mode. The Hansel and Gretel 5000. I told them not to do it. But – you know, they just might not have been able to predict that that vulnerability was there. Yes. When you're in the middle of developing, uh, it can be difficult to see that, right? Because your number one goal is to get the thing you want to happen to happen. Release. Right? Yeah. You want, you want the, whatever it is, whatever the, the end goal is of the code you are writing, you want to achieve that goal. So let's say that you're just writing a program. It's a really simple program. It's like, let's say it's a word processing program. Mm-hmm. So you're just trying to create a word processing program and you want it to have all the basic elements of word processing involved in it. You're concerned with writing code that creates a working word processor. You may not notice that in the way that you you develop this code, you have created a vulnerability that would allow a hacker to access uh, let's say some administrative level commands on an operating system through the code you've made mm-hmm. because that wasn't what you were thinking about when you were building your word processor. You weren't trying to – you weren't even thinking that that was a possibility. You were just trying to make a working word processor. Yeah, yeah. And, and for all of these all of these computers, people are writing so much code every day. Trillion lines of code a year. That was in the early 2000s. So we're cool. talking about way more – and. And you think about it. You think about the number of platforms that have increased since the early 2000s. That's before the smartphone was really a thing. You know, think about 2007. That's when the iPhone gets introduced. That's when the smartphone, at least in the United States, really becomes a consumer product. Before that time, it was something that you might see some executives having as uh, part of the way they interact with their businesses. But the average consumer in the United States didn't have a smartphone until after 2007. At that point, you've got... So many different devices now. Mm-hmm. 
that people are developing code for. And some of them aren't even, you know, your traditional computers or smartphones or tablets. They might be hardware that the consumer is never interacting in a way where they're even aware there's software involved, right? Uh, sure. Right. Like every single uh, Intel chip that's sold has has stuff hard coded into it. And yeah. that's it's not just Intel, every every chip. Sure, yeah. Basically. Yeah. Many chips. Your basic rate. firmware, right? Yeah. The idea that you've got programming that is physically codified into a system. It's mm-hmm. not it's not like some ephemeral software that exists for a moment and then is gone. It's it's actually part of the device itself. So we've got all this code, huge amounts. Now imagine it's your job to go through code and find vulnerabilities. And you're thinking there's more code generated every day than I could possibly get through in a week. It's kind of like the issue with YouTube where you talk about how many hours per minute get uploaded to YouTube. You, there's no way to watch how, all the content because you, it's physically impossible. Yeah, you you could say, well, how could we monitor all that content to make sure people aren't uploading copyrighted movies and stuff like that? But you know what you could do? You could design a program to look through all of that stuff. And mm-hmm. compare it against and the database of copyrighted material. It's exactly. a lot easier than hiring Bob to try to watch an impossible number of YouTube videos every day. Yeah. So yeah, you've got and and if you've seen you've seen people trying to get around this, I bet right on YouTube where they like uh, they upload copyrighted material, but it's like obscured and flipped and zooming in and out in weird ways to try to prevent auto detection. Right? Have right. you seen this? Yeah, or people you know people just have like a a section of whatever the view would be. Yeah, those are the worst, right? Where you're like, oh. It's the lower two-thirds of a television screen so that this doesn't get picked up. Uh, an awful, awful sound quality. What a wonderful experience I'm having right now. I'm going to go buy the movie. Man, really, <laughs> you think about it, it's more of a great tool to convince people to purchase this stuff legitimately <laughs> in order to have a decent experience. But at any rate, uh, one of the things that was interesting when I was researching this was the – you know, you got those trillion lines of code. What does that mean in, in terms of vulnerabilities? And the estimate I was hearing was about – they were talking about a billion vulnerabilities existing out there. A billion. So you've got trillion lines of code and a billion vulnerabilities. Finding a billion vulnerabilities within a trillion lines of code, that is such a monumental task. Most experts are saying like, yeah, I can't even wrap my head Wait, around it. Hold mm-hmm. on. Am I doing the math right that that would be one vulnerability for every thousand lines of code? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So then you sit there and you think about it. Like if you're, it, let's say that you got a job uh, request saying, "Yeah, so um, turns out there's a billion vulnerabilities out there. I'm going to need you to clear those up before the end of the year." You'd be just like, "I'm going into a new line of work. Yeah. <laughs> like you can't do it." Uh, yes, I'm leaving this job and also possibly my sanity. Goodbye. Yeah. Um, and, and these these vulnerabilities do shake out into actual. Issues. Uh, I, I read a report where a security firm called Jamalto said that approximately a billion records, personal records, were compromised worldwide in 2014 alone. So one in like one in seven point something. Yeah. So you've got. Well, I mean, assuming that that, that a human person only creates one record per year, I, I, I think it's more <laughs> well, than that. But yeah. but yeah. But at any rate, like like a, like a billion is a nice round number. Like it's large. It's not small. It's it's impossible for me to even you know, have a concept of how much that is. And when you think, like we said, about how the this this code is integrated not just in software but in hardware across all sorts of different devices and infrastructures, you realize this is a legitimately a problem. It is it is really a threat, right? It's not it's not just it's not just something like, oh well, that's inconvenient. It's not like, oh man, my cell phone's gonna get hacked. It's like, oh man, our our hydro power plant is going to get hacked. Uh, yeah. The U.S. Director of National Intelligence, one James Clapper, in 2015 listed cyber attacks as the most serious global threat above terrorism, above weapons of mass destruction, above Psydux, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, Godzilla. Yeah. More so than that. That's saying something. So, yeah, you've got you've got the perfect situation for disaster here, right? You've got a target-rich environment and Cybersecurity experts might know to to really seek out 
the stuff that's going to have wide propagation first because obviously if you're a hacker, you want to try and hit as many targets as you possibly can. Right. So from a cybersecurity point of view, you'd say let's make sure we cover the stuff that's going to get the widest circulation first and then worry about the smaller programs, kind of like, you know, think of it like concentric circles. We want to get on that middle of that target first. So like operating system updates or major product upgrades, that kind of stuff, stuff that lots and lots and lots of people are going to get. But that also means the hackers could say, well, I won't hit as many people if I aim for these other more niche-oriented software packages. Right. But I'm also less likely to encounter resistance. I'm more likely to find a vulnerability that people haven't identified yet and therefore will be able to hit a greater percentage of that niche right. than I would if I aimed for like, one of the operating systems. Who's really shoring up the defenses of this organ trail clone that I downloaded? Huh. Right, which, I'm by sure. the way, is a great game. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I mean, I, I do want to put in here that there are certainly – uh, hackers for good, like white hat hackers, sure. cybersecurity type experts that we've been talking about who are actively working every day to, to plug up these kind of vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not looking to cause harm or mischief, but to, to seek these things out and to change them. There, there are conventions around the world where, uh, where, where hackers and other interested parties gather to strategize and to learn and to present research and to disclose security problems that they've found. Um, you know, either, Providing outright or selling the information to the parties at hand that that would be able to enact changes. Um, one of those, Black Hat, is actually happening this very weekend, July 30th through August 4th in Las Vegas. Right. The other big one I hear about all the time is DEF CON. Right. Yes. Uh, that also happens in Las Vegas. I uh, urge you that if you ever decide to attend one of these conventions – Bring a burner phone and leave your normal one at home. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yep. being totally serious. Yep. That's, I, I agree 100%. These, um, uh, these hackathons often have a wall of shame. And if you have not secured your technology properly, they will put your name up there. Oh, yeah. Because they will have found how to access your stuff and say, look, uh, this is serious. You need to be aware of this. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm, <laughs> these, these, uh, quote unquote white hat, White hat hackers certainly are not outside of the realm of, of the mischief type of concept. I mean, but, but, it's, right. but it's mischief for good. And to, yes, exactly. To be fair, one of the issues that hackers who are doing this work run into is a lack of cooperation on the side of the companies that are producing the software, right? And that's starting to change, I think. Um, I, I think that a lot of companies have come into the realization that it is less expensive to hire this kind of security expert uh, than it is to allow someone to create a vulnerability in the mm-hmm. programming. Right. Um, but and, 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 and many, many companies do these days have hackers on their team looking for these kind of vulnerabilities. Uh, and there's been tons of successful projects to come out of, of freelancers and contractors and full-time hackers, uh, you know, work bolstering everything from, uh, from the security of hospital patients' records and pacemakers and insulin pumps. Insulin pumps have computers in them now. That's terrifying um, and wonderful. But uh, but but to to making ATMs and net- network routers more secure, to making prison and office doors unhackable. Mm. Important or stuff. Or cars, for that or, matter. Or car. Right, right. All of these things. Um, so you know, it's not that it's not that humans are totally falling down on the job. It's just that we are only humans. Right. Which is why we need the machines to take over, right? Yes. Because the idea being that, you know, if you have a computer program that's- help us out. Yeah. Exactly. If you have a computer program that is properly uh, orchestrated, properly designed and coded so that it can look for vulnerabilities and patch them autonomously, then it's going to be able to work much faster, more efficiently than any human could. It never gets tired. It's never going to miss- a vulnerability because it's been staring at this code for like six hours and it just, you know, you get that blindness. Six going. hours, wuss. Yeah, well. I'm, most of my programmer friends are like, you know, 14 hours in with like 17 cups of coffee. And sure. Increasingly, increasingly and exciting eye, eye twitch. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the issue there, of course, is that you're more likely to miss something. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, yeah. but a computer program doesn't because 
it just uh, keeps on trucking. Now, obviously, the, de- the the dependability on the program is only as good as the developers are, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but ideally, they would catch problems before bad guys could ever identify there was a problem there in the first place and everything gets patched, maybe even before the release of the software so that there's never the opportunity for a hacker to take advantage and exploit a vulnerability. Right. So this all leads up to this Cyber Grand Challenge, which is happening August 4th, 2016. And that's where we get this automated capture the flag tournament. Mm-hmm. That this is also in Las Vegas, uh, kind of on the tail end of, of Black Hat. I'm not sure if it's officially, I doubt it's officially affiliated. Right. Yeah. I love the idea of DARPA showing up to Black Hat. Soap! <laughs> um, and everyone's like, hey, buddy, hacked your system last week. Looking good. Uh, so so th- this is this is actually the final round. Of competition. It's a uh-huh. competition that's been going on for a while now. It's not something that is, you know, they, they had made it just for this one day. Um, and in fact, in earlier rounds of competition, which began back in 2014, there were more than 30 teams that registered for this. Um, and they could register as either an open track competitor, which covered self-funded teams, or a proposal track competitor, which were teams that were invited to participate by DARPA itself and partially supported by the agency to develop the tech necessary to compete. This is not unusual. The same thing happened in their driverless car challenges where they had teams that were specifically invited to participate versus those that uh, volu- that, that essentially stepped forward to enter the competition. Mm-hmm. So, so there were more than 30 – uh, back in 2014, we're down to seven finalists now. Uh, each finalist team received a, a an award of $750,000 to prepare for the grand challenge uh, after completing these preliminary rounds. So here are the seven finalists in the Cyber Grand Challenge. There are some researchers from Moscow, Idaho, which <laughs> I did not know was a place <clears> – <throat> Uh, with the Center for Secure and Dependable Systems, or CSDS. Now, this was a group that formed out of the – well, the Idaho State Board of Education called for this group to come into being, uh, specifically at the University of Idaho to advance computer security, education, and research. According to their their profile on DARPA, it, they represent the only system that was entirely built from scratch. Every other system that is in the, the finals – uh, had existed in some previous form before these these preliminary tests began. Mm-hmm. Next, you have Deep Red, which is a team from Raytheon. Uh, they took their name by combining Deep Blue, which was IBM's system that took on grandmasters in chess, and the color of Raytheon's logo, which is red. So again, uh, Deep Red. So this is not the uh, the Dario Argento movie. <laughs> no. No. Uh, next, you have Dissect, which is spelled D-I-S-E-K-T, and they hail from Athens, Georgia. So I went to college in Athens, Georgia. Uh-huh. Uh, they are the one team in the challenge that has managed to post scores in five other CTF events hosted by various other universities and, and organizations. Mm. So they've, they've got a record got shops, yeah. Yeah, of, of doing well in other uh, competitions. Next, you've got For All Secure. That's all one word. Uh, they're out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That team started with researchers who worked with Carnegie Mellon University. You have Shellfish with fish <laughs> with spelled with a, with a PH. I yeah. love that. Uh, they're out of Santa Barbara, California. Uh, that group grew out of a hacking team at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And it includes, according to their profile, the youngest program analyst expert in the competition. Uh, I love like the little facts that you get under mm-hmm. each team as you go through them. Uh, next, you have TechX, which is based out of Ithaca, New York, and Charlottesville, Virginia. Team members come from Gramatech Incorporated and the University of Virginia. They developed a program they call PSOUP, which is an acronym that stands for Preventing Exploits of Software of Uncertain Provenance. I don't know. Do I love or do I hate those contrived acronyms? Uh, you might want to ask you where can the answer that question, Joe. You might want to ask where look the look deep inside yourself. Where does the A in pea soup come from in that? <laughs> Preventing exploits of what? Ex- yeah. Ex- Where does the A come from? One wonders from ex- that. It should be peck soup. Yeah. Or pa soup. Uh, then you have, I love this name too, <laughs> Kojitsu. Uh-huh. 
which is a team that is based in, uh, well, three different places, actually. They have researchers who are in Berkeley, California, uh, Lausanne, Switzerland, and Syracuse, New York. So it's a col- collaboration of scientists from Berkeley, Cyberhaven, and Syracuse. And they're all competing for prizes that uh, that collectively amount to just under $4 million. Um and so there's some there's some big money and obviously some great bragging rights if you're the the group that creates the the automated system that wins. I mean that's that's some nice uh, accolades to have. Oh sure. I mean also see above re being able to sell it to a company. Right. You've done that or rent it out at any rate. Right. But they you know they Dar- DARPA's very quick to mention that this competition is really more about Identifying the most effective approaches. It's not necessarily, uh, we have identified the working strategy. This, this one product here is clearly the way we're going to go. Everyone else, thank you for showing up. <laughs> it's not Willy Wonka, right? right? You know, it's not everyone else has to go home. It's rather saying the elements that you had in your approach. These these particular ones we've identified were really effective. But this other team had these that were very effective in a different way. How can we start to look at the things that worked best and create best practices? So they're mm-hmm. going to create a Frankenstein cybersecurity robot. Well, it's really to – slug mouth. You know. Powering it. Maybe. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, but really, I mean, it's about, about identifying what strategies work the best in order to move forward with the next step. Um, so – you might wonder, all right, well, how is this all going to play out based upon that? Well, you know, it hasn't happened yet. Right. Uh, and while we're all about talking about the future and speculating, we are incapable of telling you who won yet. Can't – after it happens, we can do it. But right now, not so much. Um, and it may turn out that none of those programs perform better than human experts they'll be pitted against. That is a possibility. That certainly wouldn't surprise me today. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it may still be that even if that happens, we're able to at least identify the reasons why mm-hmm. programs didn't measure up to humans or things that got close but didn't quite get there. Well, I mean, one thing that strikes me is maybe maybe they've found a way to uh, to circumvent this problem, but it seems like you couldn't really combine – the advantages of an automated system versus the advantages of a human operator in a competition setting. Because in a competition setting, there's a limited scope of problem-solving area, if you know what I mean. Sure. Uh, So there's like a a limited problem-solving space. And what the automated system would seem to have at its advantage is sort of just limitless time and, and speed. To search the problem space for problems to identify, you and, know and, I mean? and like like multi-processing, multi-processor tracks to uh, accomplish that on multiple systems in multiple programs at the same time. Right. Um, but but I'm sure that uh, you can. I mean, the hard evidence that you're going to get here is like if if a computer program can uh, crack all the vulnerabilities and patch them in a fifth of the time that a human does it or vice versa, then, then you've got a pretty solid idea of, of how fast each system is working. And, and over time, uh, that kind of time difference, uh, will, will be affected by how much it can get done. Well, and, and also we need to remember DARPA challenges sometimes teach us a lot, even when everyone fails uh, all the competitors fail. That was the Although case. Although this failure won't be nearly as funny as watching those robots trying to open that door. Yeah, right. Well, I was ba- mostly thinking of the driverless car uh, challenge. Oh, Although that, that one was funny too. Well, the driverless car challenge, the first time they held that back in 2004, they didn't award a winner. No one, no one team was able to complete the objectives, uh, in the time allotted. Most of them had pretty remarkable failures where the vehicle at some point got off track or failed to respond anymore or just, you know, whatever. For whatever reason, it was un- was not able to complete the course. Uh, but they decided to go ahead and hold the challenge again the following year, which gave the teams chances to go back and, and reevaluate their work, make changes and improvements so that it, they were better able to compete the following year. And that's when things started to really move forward, literally, in that case. And uh, when you look at it that way, you could say, well, if they had just in 2004 said, oh, well, this this isn't going to work, 
we're walking away from this, then we wouldn't be on the cusp of the autonomous car revolution, which we appear to be right now, mm-hmm. right? It could very – we have companies right now talking about it will be a matter of years, not a lot of them, a few years, and then we'll start seeing autonomous cars in earnest start to hit the roads beyond just the limited use we're seeing where it might be like an office park automated bus or something that navigates through like a, a, a relatively – closed system like an airport, that kind of thing, like around an airport at various terminals. Um, so it may be the same with this grand cyber challenge where that first year of competition, we don't see a, a clear winner, but it that doesn't necessarily mean this is the end of the line. Um, although it's also possible that one of the automated systems will just totally smoke all the other competitors, both computer and human. Uh, the most likely outcome will be that through this challenge, we'll learn which of these techniques are the most promising and which ones seem to be less effective. Mm-hmm. And thus, people can direct their attention to to the avenues that appear to be best best choi- chance of success mm-hmm. uh, with the goal, ultimately, of creating these automated systems that could be rolled out on a rather large scale to, you know, check for probe for vulnerabilities in software across multiple platforms – in some cases, before they can actually be encoded into hardware. I mean, anything that's been encoded into hardware, that's tough. Like, you you could do firmware updates, but that's really a software layer. It's not like you're physically changing the chip that's already been produced. You, you're just, you're trying to compensate for a vulnerability that's been hard-coded into a device. Yeah. That's a little trickier, but um, moving forward, you could at least mitigate that somewhat and limit the number of vulnerabilities that get put into hardware. So the biggest outcome of this would be that we'd have a safer approach to this wondrous future we've talked about, this Internet of Things future where reality is responding to our wishes and desires before we can even voice them. And refrigerators can eat us. I don't want to see that happen, Joe. But I also don't want to see a future in which this wondrous world I'm walking around in is also – Enabling a hacker to track my every movement or get tons of personal information about me or exploit me in some other way that I may or may not be aware of or, you know. Yeah, it's a concept where we want to make the world better with this, not scarier. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to open the door and have a guy sitting there like, so here's the thing. I've been tracking your every movement for the last two years and unless you pay me this um, exorbitant amount of money – Everyone's going to know about how often you go to Taco Bell. Your terrible, <laughs> your terrible puppy kicking excursions throughout the neighborhood when you think everyone's asleep, or whatever it may be. Uh, the Taco Bell thing, while it does strike deep into my heart, I think I could I could reconcile myself with uh, over time. Yeah, um, <laughs> over time and a couple of of Taco Locos, I could probably do it. But yeah, it's oh my god, are those the ones that are in Doritos? Yes, that's the thing, right? Yeah, a taco that's inside Doritos. It, the, the shell itself is made out of essentially Dorito chip. Yeah, and and then you've got um, like melted cheese on top of it. It looks yeah. pretty insane. I have never actually tried one of these things. I just happen to know what the name is. Um, but yeah, we, if we want this Internet of the Future, we want it to be a safe one. And obviously, again, if we're talking about trillions of lines of code, expecting it to be a safe future without the use of computer assistance seems to be implausible at the at best. You know, one potentially frightening implication uh, of this whole scenario, it's not of what uh, what DARPA is doing with this competition necessarily, but just the fact that we're in a position to be having this kind of competition is that we could, as humans, lose sight of what's happening in the sort of back and forth uh, between uh, people who want to compromise our information security and and take over our devices and the measures that are put in place to protect them. Uh, it's kind of like that frightening scenario in automated trading where – you have computers making lightning fast buy and sell decisions on the stock market or commodities markets. And even the people who design these systems don't understand what they're doing in real time. Oh, right, right. right. Or, or, you know, small, small glitches like a, like that time that like 
I, I don't know, like like something on Twitter made the stock market waver for a moment, and everyone was like, uh, like like taking their hands slowly off of the computer wheel. It is like, it is Ugh. terrifying when you get to a system that's so sophisticated that even the people who designed the system cannot be fully certain what caused it to make a specific decision at a specific time. Mm-hmm. Right, and so I I think that there is generally we we might want to be concerned about allowing a state of affairs where humans just sort of get cut out of the loop of understanding the software that governs our day-to-day lives. Like, so you imagine this, this future scenario, hackers have massively powerful automated vulnerability seeking software uh, that tests all networked systems. It can find for weak points. You know, it's essentially like living in a world where people could insert lockpick guns into 10,000 different houses, front doors every eight seconds to see what could be picked. So this is kind of like the black hat version of the software we were just talking about. Right, but I'm, I'm getting there. Right. About, so if you have that, there'd be no way for human security agents to keep up. So you'd need this kind of automated vulnerability seeking and containment software, right? But imagine – so you've got these two systems working in tandem, both automated, sort of in an, in an automated security arms race back and forth. Um, will humans lose track of what their own software does and how? I don't suspect so because humans are still the ones creating the software with a specific purpose in mind. And what we're looking at is the – patching or exploiting of vulnerabilities within that software, not fundamentally changing how that software behaves or what it is supposed to do. But right. Jonathan, what if what if that software decides that the real vulnerability in the system is us? <laughs> it's a little different, but I, I like where you're going. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I mean, I, I don't mean that, but I, do, I know. I know. <laughs> I know you know. But I do mean like, okay, so let's say a computer... Uh, this program detects a vulnerability and then patches it. But as we all know, sometimes maybe a security patch can destabilize the system in another oh, sure. way. Yeah. Uh, you've just caused a new problem that needs to be addressed. And so what if they say, ah, you know, every time it, it patches something, it's not sophisticated enough that it can do that without compromising something else in the system. So we've got to, uh, we've got to let it fix the compromised part also. So it's got to patch security and it's got to fix the destabilized system. And then, oh, that caused another problem. I, I, I can imagine scenarios where there are cascading effects requiring us to create self-modifying software. And, I don't know, self-modifying software always makes me feel a little icky. Well, the problem is we need it now anyway. Yeah. We have so many, so many lines of code that there's a need. Like, if what's the other option? We don't develop the automated software. We train about another billion people in <laughs> in cybersecurity. It's yeah, it's, well, or, and give them all we, jobs. Or we don't have an internet of things, I guess is an option. Which is not that's not happening unless there's just a, a catastrophic change in our technology. You know, bar- maybe one of those sunspots or, or solar right. flares will bar- happen. Barring some enormous electromagnetic pulse device that it goes over an entire or large enough section of the world, or a scenario where our priorities shift to, to guzzling. Right. Uh, I think. I think that's. I mean, we we've kind of committed, right? Mm-hmm. We're yeah. kind of committed to a pathway which requires us to do this, and so it's almost a moot question at this point of should we do this now it's we have to do this or we have to at least attempt to do this to see if it will work because we've created a problem that isn't going away on its own unless we make a a fundamental change in the way we are moving forward which doesn't seem likely uh, at least not within the foreseeable future it would amaze me to see uh, a real move to put the brakes on the Internet of Things. Oh, yeah, point. yeah. I mean, I agree. So uh, I understand where you're, get, where, you're, where you're headed, but I think, first of all, we already have those problems, right? If you yeah. detect a, a software vulnerability and you patch it and that destabilizes things, we already have to fix that. It's just right now we're the ones who oh, have to do it. Have right. to. But, <laughs> but yeah, uh, no, no. I, 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 see, I certainly see your point, Jonathan, I, and I think that that's, that's – 
It's absolutely ludicrous to think that we're just going to stop networking all of our increasingly valuable electronics to the internet. Um, but, but I, but I definitely, you know, think that caution or at least a, a kind of concept of science fiction horror be, be kept like close to our hearts and, and considered. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't really have an alternative to suggest. I, I understand that I think we probably need something like uh, automated cybersecurity, but it just, I don't know, I just guess thought we should be aware of this fact that, you know, there, there's always something a little bit strange about the idea of in any extent of cutting humans out of the loop of right, right. architecture of software yeah. that runs our lives. I, I do think also that like, and, and I say this with absolute respect and love for for programmers and speci- specifically uh cybersecurity programmers um <laughs> uh I don't think we have to worry about those nice humans being not paranoid. I I think I think that they've got that covered and I think that they will take that into consideration when they're doing their work. <laughs> I think it's part part of the gig. Yeah. I agree. I think uh I mean obviously anytime you're talking about developing any sort of technology, particularly automated technology, you have to be cognizant of poss- of the consequences if stuff were to go wrong. Trying to anticipate as many of those possible outcomes as you possibly can and to plan for them and account for them so that they don't happen. Uh, it, for one thing, it's, it's always going to be impossible to do that to 100% perfection. Um, and at some point, you just have to say, well, we just – We've got to move forward and hope that we have uh, uh, accounted for all the most risky outcomes. Um, but yeah, it, it, it just it becomes a matter of practicality eventually. And unless we do reverse gears and back off from this approach of Internet of Things, which at this point I think there's so many companies that have so much money in Internet of Things that that's unrealistic uh, – it's it's something we have to move forward with. I'm very curious to see how this turns out. I really look forward to reading up on the competition once it's finished and seeing how the various teams did. And uh you know, did any did any of the teams or did multiple teams uh significantly outperform the human participants? I can't wait to to learn more about it. So, we'll probably at some point do a follow-up of of some sort. Um, either a, a forward-thinking video or maybe a future podcast where we talk about these concepts and how how did the machines do? Did we did we see a, a marked improvement in performance over humans, or is that something that humans are just better at doing than machines are right now? Because sometimes we run into that stuff. Seems to be fewer and far between these days, but it does still happen. For instance, we're still better at opening up a door and walking through it. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode. Yeah, that's I I love it. To me, it's like the the classic escape from Daleks is just run up some stairs until the reboot. Yeah, the reboot ruined all that. But back in the day, the good says stairs would protect you from the Daleks. Uh, All right. So if you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of forward thinking or you got any questions or comments, anything like that, you can send us a message. Otherwise, we won't hear you. Our email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. If you search Facebook for fwthinking, our profile will pop right up. You can leave us a message there. We are fwthinking on Twitter. You can always tweet us at Twitter. We're happy to hear from you. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. 
For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash slash iHeart.